Welcome to the Grace Community Church Podcast. We are grace for everyone, community for everyone, church for everyone. We hope that as you listen to the message from this past Sunday, that your heart is encouraged and you find yourself being drawn to Jesus wherever you're tuning in from. We are so grateful that you've joined us and pray that you'll be blessed as you listen to this week's message. Hey friends, what is the best gift you've ever received? Like, was it something that was expected? Was it a surprise? Did it come at a typical time when you would receive a gift at Christmas? Was it kind of completely out of the blue? I'm not sure if you asked my wife what the best gift I've ever given her is, but if I had to guess, it would be the time that I coordinated with one of her best friends to surprise her with a trip to go visit her after the birth of one of their daughters. I, I like I you know went behind Brenda's back and I I booked flights without telling her. I contacted her boss and made sure that she could have the time off without her knowing any of that. And if I if I remember correctly, it's a few years ago now, but if I remember correctly, I didn't even tell her about it until the day before her flight was leaving. I needed to give her enough time to pack and do all of those things. But it was it was a great surprise because her best friend had just had a baby and she was going to get a chance to go uh, snuggle that baby and it would, you know, otherwise it would have been probably a year before we had a chance to see them again. And it was a bit of a risk though because my wife doesn't love surprises. She takes far more pleasure in being a part of the planning process, like the build-up, the anticipation of that. That's a big part of the joy of going on a trip or planning a vacation together. And so taking all of that away was a bit of a risk, but it's a gift that I'm not sure I'm ever going to be able to top. I have a couple more tricks up my sleeve, but that gift was just about perfect because it was it was unique. It was unexpected. And it didn't follow the normal rules of our gift giving. Like Typically, we agree on an amount. We, you know, you know, we do birthdays and we do Christmases. And, and it's funny how even our gifts end up tangled up with rules, right? Like, I remember, I remember when my brothers and I stopped giving each other Christmas gifts. Um, because after a couple of years of just, like, exchanging gift cards, like, we basically passed around gift cards of the exact same amount to each other, like 50 bucks from Best Buy and 50 bucks from Long McQuaid. And we just kind of did that around the circle and realized, you know what, we could probably just go buy our own gifts. We don't need to do this. If all that it is, is just some obligation that we're fulfilling. Like the gifts became this thing that we just had to do at Christmas. So we stopped because the gifts had lost their meaning. And that's the funny thing about gifts. Gifts, when they are unique, when they are unexpected, when they are undeserved, um, they mean so much more. When they come from the heart, when they create this sense of being known and appreciated, that, that's when gifts mean something. But if it's just the fulfillment of an obligation, it no longer feels like a gift. And this is the feeling that I get when I read chapter 3 of Galatians. This idea of like, what, when is it a gift and when is it this obligation that we're fulfilling? We're a few weeks into our series in the book of Galatians, and if you're just jumping in, you can catch up on the earlier messages on the YouTube channel, but the book of Galatians is this letter. It's written to a bunch of churches in the province of Galatia by Paul, the apostle, who had helped plant most of those churches. And there's this group of teachers that have been weaseling their way into the churches and beginning to teach that in order to be a true follower of Jesus, you must be circumcised, you must follow the law of Moses. 
And so Paul's writing to correct this heresy. And in chapter 3, he doesn't pull any punches. Let's get back into the book. The beginning of chapter 3 says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by your believing what you heard? When I read that first line, you foolish Galatians, I confess I heard Napoleon Dynamite go like, idiots. Like, that's how strong the original Greek is here. Other translations use words like witless or stupid or senseless, irrational, thoughtless. The Amplified goes on and says, Oh, you poor and silly and thoughtless and unreflecting and senseless Galatians. I like the Phillips translation. It says, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, who saw Jesus Christ, the crucified, so plainly, who has been casting a spell over you? I prefer Tina Fey's, like, God bless, sweet dum-dums. This is one of the reasons why I recommend looking up passages in other translations. Because if you're like me, you tend to stick to one or two different English translations of the Bible when you read or memorize or study scripture. And it can really enrich your reading when you see how other translations render the text. Even those ones that aren't necessarily like a word for word, but like the modern equivalents, like the message or living translation. Like, when you read, you foolish Galatians, when you hear things like, oh, you, you witless, you like, well, what are you doing? Like you senseless, unthinking Galatians. Like there's an exclamation mark there. What are you thinking? Who has bewitched you? Who has deceived you, tricked you, pulled the wool over your eyes? Like the message was so clear when it was presented to you. Jesus on the cross, crucified for your salvation. Why have you taken your eyes off that? What? What has tricked you? What has beguiled you? He asks this pointed rhetorical question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or believing by what you heard? What, what was the means by which you, ex, you experienced God? What was the means by which you received the Spirit? Did the evidence of God's grace and forgiveness show up because you learned the Torah? Or was it the message of Christ crucified that you believed in and were saved? He asks this question, he's like, why, why do you think that you can now attain the presence of God? Or why do you feel like you can now draw closer to God by works of the flesh, by following this other way, when it's so clearly Jesus plus nothing that equals everything? Again, he says, are you so foolish that you like toss the spirit aside? You attempt to get to God through the flesh by circumcision and works of the law? The issue that's at stake here is kind of twofold. He, like, did the Galatians now believe that to be part of the family of God, they needed to first be part of the family of Israel? Like, is that the only way that they were going to be part of what God was doing, is if they also became part of the family of Israel? That the only way to do that was through circumcision and following the law? And then the second piece was, did they now believe that the gospel they first came to know was somehow incomplete? That if they really wanted to be right before God, if they really wanted to stay connected to God, it had to be done through Torah. And Paul here is beside himself. 
like who would make that trade, he says. Why, why would you set aside the spirit and go back to the law? Why would you choose to go back to a work-based salvation? This is a free gift that's been given. And now the Galatians are trying to work their way back to God by following the law. So he repeats the question, does God give you his spirit and work miracles because of the law or by believing what you heard? Now on the surface, we might react the same way that Paul did, like shocked that the Galatians could be so foolish. Of course we wouldn't choose that. Of course we wouldn't. If we knew that the gift was free and it was the perfect gift, it was unique, it was undeserved, it was this thing that God had bestowed upon the people by giving his son, why would you go back to a like, oh, but then you also have to do this in order to earn the gift? But we're tempted to do the same thing, aren't we? We're tempted to works just like the Galatians were. Maybe not necessarily to the Old Testament law, but to, to other things. Like, I, I don't know if this is you, but I know that in my own life, you know, if, if I miss out on church or, you know, I haven't spent as much time in prayer as I would in a typical week, I haven't spent time studying and, I, my, you know, my heart's feeling a little dry or distant from God and things start to go sideways in my life, I, I think that it's because I didn't do those things. Oh, of, of course this is why this is happening. It's because I didn't go to church on Sunday or because I didn't read my Bible or I didn't pray enough or I didn't, I didn't do these things in order to experience the goodness and blessing of God. We think that if we just you know, pray enough or we use the right words or, or pray with enough passion that God's going to hear and answer and when he doesn't or things don't go the way that we had thought, we feel like it's because we didn't do like we didn't do enough, we didn't do it right, we didn't do it properly. We think that we, if we give, that you know God has to give back to us. You know, pressed down, shaken together, running over. So, so we tithe or we give uh, our offerings so that God will bless us. Well, that's not necessarily the way things work. But we think in our minds, subconsciously sometimes, that if we do all of the right things, that God has to bless us, God has to answer, that the way has to be smooth, that the way has to go the way we had hoped. But just like the Galatians, that's backwards thinking. We we get the cart before the horse. We do all of those things. We pray and we give and we bless others. We, We gather for worship because we've already been blessed, because we have already received this incredible gift. It's not so that we receive blessing. It's not so that we receive salvation. It's because we've already received those things. We do these things as a response to the love and forgiveness. It's not as a means to earn it. But it's such a subtle shift in our hearts and it gets twisted so often. So in some ways, I sympathize with the Galatians. And, and, and I, can, I can say that there's times where like I've been like thinking about my own spiritual life and kind of like, ah, oh, idiot. Well, like why did, you, why did you think that that's the way it had to be? Why did you give up on the grace of God? Why did you think that by your striving you could somehow earn favor when the favor is already there. God already loves you with an everlasting love more than you could ever ask or even imagine. He has already done those things. God has given his spirit as a free gift. So I appreciate Paul's reminder and the, and the challenge to be reminded that you saw things clearly. You saw Jesus clearly crucified. Why would you turn your eyes away from that? Salvation comes from believing in Jesus, on his work on the cross that redeems us. And everything we do is a response of gratitude for that gift. It's not a way of earning it. Paul goes on to use an example from Israel's history. He says, So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. 
Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And Paul's use of Abraham here is brilliant because the Judaizers, those people who've been teaching about the law of Moses, they've been trying to get the Galatians to focus on the law. They've been trying to get to focus on Moses. And Paul goes back even further in Israel's story. He goes back a few generations. And Abraham, Abraham was the father of all the Israelites. He was the one that God promised that like your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All nations will be blessed because of you. The, the, the story of the people of Israel really begins with the story of Abraham, of God choosing Abraham. And so if you want to be part of the family, you have to be a part of Abraham's seed. You have to be, it's Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. Well, Paul brings back that in uh, example to say like, did Abraham follow the law? Well, no, the law didn't exist, not for a few hundred years. And yet, by faith, God accepted Abraham and blessed him. In fact, way back then, God said that through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. And Paul ties in this idea that like, that the, the story of Jesus was actually kind of hinted at here, that, that the Gentiles were going to come to faith. Even those people who weren't um, naturally born uh, Jewish citizens would become a part of the family of Abraham because it's faith, not the law, that would, would join them to the family. So Paul's reminding the Gentiles that their family through faith, that it's not because of following the law, because they also believed like Abraham believed, they also have be, been brought into the family. You don't get there through the law. So don't pick up the law and attempt to please God. You're already in. Don't pick up the law in, the, in an attempt to be a part of the family. Paul continues, he says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is some beautiful work of theology on Paul's part. Remember, this is a man who had dedicated his entire life to following the law of God. He was a star pupil, a, a Pharisee in the strictest sense. This is somebody who honored and loved Torah with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Paul is putting all of that aside to show the supremacy of Jesus. He, he said in, a, in another letter that he considers all of that loss, all of those things that he accomplished beforehand, he considers his loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Those who rely on the law are going to fall short of it every time. And Paul knew this because he knew the law. They will be, in Paul's words, cursed. They, they, they have no hope if all they trust in is their obedience to the law because there's no way of keeping it perfectly. Not a single person has. But thanks be to God, Jesus came to deliver us from that curse. Now through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, not in the law, all can be saved. Both the children of Israel who have clung to and fallen short of the law and those they were called to be a blessing to, the Gentiles. Paul uses another example in case it wasn't clear enough. He says, brothers and sisters, 
Let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant promised previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. So the promise came first. This is the example he gives. When you add to it, it doesn't negate what happened beforehand. So God was going to bless Abraham, and this seed would be a blessing to all nations. So God was going to bring everyone home, Jew and Gentile, before the law even came into being, 430 years before. So the law does not negate the promise because the promise came first. So in the same way, those teachers that were trying to get the Galatians to follow the law aren't going far enough back. They're adding circumcision and Sabbath keeping and other Mosaic laws to the work of Jesus, but that doesn't add anything to somebody's faith. It actually takes away from the promise because it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. So why bother with the law in the first place? What was the point of the law? Well, we finish up this section with Paul's explanation. He says, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, who is Jesus, to whom the promise referred to had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what, is, what was promised, being given through faith in Christ Jesus, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that the law, sorry, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So he uses this like, sort of jailkeeper um, imagery or this um, being arrested by something imagery uh, to talk about the law. Why was the law given at all? The answer that he gives is the law was like a necessary part of the story. It was this intervention between the giving of the promise and its fulfillment. And there's a great deal of time that happens between Abraham and Jesus. And so the law was given to help keep people on track. How effective it was is, is maybe up for debate, but some people have assumed that Paul saw the law as a bad thing to be swept aside, but I think that's misunderstanding Paul. He, he's saying that it was for this season. We get hints of it in this passage. He's, he's quite clear that the human race as a whole has fallen short, that it doesn't measure up to the perfection of God. It is sinful, and, and God is going to judge that sin. But he's also clear that God called Abraham so that eventually through his family, the remedy would be found for the problem of those human beings and indeed for the whole universe as a whole, that, that God was in this plan of redemption going to take the seed of Abraham and redeem all things. But Abraham's family from that day onward were also still part of the human race. They were still part of the problem. They couldn't keep the law perfectly once the law came. They still needed to have that seed arrive, that one who would come and bring the promised redemption. N.T. Wright uh, gives a helpful analogy here. He says, doctors were infected with the disease. 
What then had to happen? The answer is the doctors themselves needed to be put in quarantine until the medicine they were carrying could be applied. The law was a kind of temporary quarantine for this purpose. To go on insisting on it after the solution has been found is absurd. The law was given, Paul says, because of this in-between state of Abraham's physical family, the people of Israel. It was given, in fact, because of transgression. A transgression is not just a sin, it's an act of wickedness, but it's also breaking the law. It was given for a set period of time until the single family intended and promised by God should arrive with the Messiah. This is what he talks about being like locked up, like sequestered. It's being in quarantine. And, and it's tricky language for us to navigate some 2,000 years later. But, but Paul is basically saying that the law has already served its purpose. And it still contains within it much of God's desires for how humanity will be healed, but it, the healing doesn't come through following the law. Now that Christ has come, the promise has been fulfilled, and the law no longer has the power to move us in the right direction. In fact, it probably brings us back into bondage, back into that quarantine. So why would we go back to, once the remedy has been found, why would we go back into quarantine? If the sickness has been dealt with, why would we attempt to go back and take medicine that doesn't work anymore? Again, you, you have to understand how much of a shift in perspective this was for somebody like Paul. For Paul to arrive at the, the ability to see Jesus not only as Messiah, but as the supreme answer to all of humanity's problems. That he, that conversion on the road to Damascus was this incredible miracle because he now saw and understood things on a level that he had not previously grasped. He was now sharing that understanding with the Galatians who were being led astray by these people who thought they knew how God wanted things done. They thought that, well, we're, we're part of the family of God and we've been part of the family of God because we've been circumcised and we follow the law. So that's what it must mean to follow God now. And Paul's saying, no, the, the, the promise came through Abraham, not through Moses. We need to go back earlier in the story if we want to understand truly what God has been trying to do for all of history. And now that Messiah has come, now that the, the promise has been fulfilled, it's by faith. The same way that it was by faith for Abraham, it's by faith in Jesus that we find redemption. I often wonder how, how, how many times the early church muddled through things after Jesus ascended into heaven. Because it's one thing for the disciples to be able to go to Jesus and ask him questions, but now that he's gone, who are they turning to? Ultimately, it was the Spirit. But they also had to deal with people who thought they knew better. They had to wrestle with one another saying like, is this really what God is trying to say? Is this really what God was doing? And for Paul to be able to, to clearly lay out um, the, this plan of salvation to the Galatians is really a, kind of a beautiful thing. But, but he wasn't the only voice. There, there were lots of people with different opinions about what God was up to. It's like, I've had this happen a few times where like people are planning a funeral and they're arguing about what their deceased loved one would want in a service. Like everybody has their opinion about like, well, this is what dad would have wanted or I know mom would have want this song sung or we have to make sure that we have this. I remember when my uncle passed away, the only thing that he said was there will be meat at my funeral. Like we knew that we had to have a good meal afterwards. But people came to different conclusions about what it means to honor that person who's passed away. And we still face those challenges today. We still face those challenges as a church to figure out what does it mean to be faithful? What is God asking of us in, in 2023? What is God asking of us 
in, in the city of Winnipeg or the province of Manitoba or, or in Canada, whatever, wherever you find yourself, we're constantly asking that question, what does it mean for us to be faithful? And we face challenges because there's lots of different voices. Ultimately, it's why there's more than, get this, more than 45,000 different Christian denominations. Not churches, denominations. More than 45,000 on the planet. And that, like, let that stat blow your mind for a second. 45,000 different denominations. And in each of those different denominations, there are different churches with different emphases. Emphases? <laughs> and in those churches, there are different people with different perspectives. And how do we know who's right? Well, the answer is we don't and we won't. Likely, all of us are better in some areas and maybe worse in some areas than others. We don't all have the market cornered on what God is up to. But if we find ourselves looking at passages like this and going like, I kind of agree with the Judaizers, we may be finding ourselves on the wrong side of that story. If we find ourselves going like, no, it's more about the law. I wonder if we're missing what the Spirit is at work doing. A good less, a litmus test for our understanding of what God is up to is, is it faith? Is it trusting in the gift? Is it trusting in the work of Jesus? Or is it trusting in my ability? Is it trusting in my obedience? Is it trusting in my righteousness? Is it, is it saying that, well, I did this. I made this happen. If it's, if it's up to you or if it's up to your ideas or your, um, or your understanding, you, you may not be leaning enough into faith. If you have to do something to earn the gift, it's not a gift anymore. You miss out on the grace. If, if you have to get to Jesus through works, you're missing out on the promise. The gift of salvation is received by faith and faith alone. In another letter, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's by grace. It's through faith. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no requirements before entry. It is a gift of God. And if there's anything else attached, if it's Jesus plus something, it's probably missing. It's probably missing out on what God is actually doing because it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. There is a brilliant little reel that's been making its way around social media over the last number of months. And it's, it's of a preacher named Alistair Begg uh, that brings up the thief on the cross in one of his sermons. And I'm sure you could find it with a quick search if you search Alistair Begg, uh, thief on the cross. But the gist of it is this. He, he says, think about the thief on the cross. He's never been to a Bible study, never got baptized, didn't know a thing about church membership, and yet he made it. How did he make it? Like, that's what the angels must have said when he arrived at the pearly gates. Like, what are you doing here? He's like, I, I, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I, 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 I mean, I don't know. Let me get my supervisor. His supervisor angel comes up and he's like, we've got a few questions for you before we let you in. Like, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? I've never heard of it in my life. Like, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture. And, and he just stares at them. And eventually, the angel's got to be getting frustrated. He's like, on what basis are you even here? And all the man can say is, the man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross said I could come. I, I love that because it's the same for each one of us. When we 
approach our understanding of God, when we approach our faith with anything but the man on the middle cross said I could come, it is because of the work of Christ. It's him at work in me. It is because of the work of Jesus. Anytime we add something to that, it's not our faithfulness to the law. It's not because I've done this or I've said this or I've made these decisions to follow Jesus. It's the man on the middle cross said I could come. It's not all the other do-gooder stuff that we attempt. The man on the middle cross said we can come. That's it. It's Jesus. All and only Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this reminder that the law cannot save us. The law has no power to change or deliver us, but that Jesus does. Faith or trust in Jesus is where we find our salvation. And we put our faith and trust in him alone, knowing that that salvation lies in his work, not in ours. It's not in our lives. It's not in what we can do. It's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. And Lord, we are so tempted to fall back on our own good deeds to win your approval. We're, we're so tempted to think that if we just follow all the rules, we'll somehow earn a special place in your heart. And the truth is we already occupy that special place. By nature of our existence, we are beloved creations. And it's only because of Jesus that we enjoy the forgiveness and freedom that you designed for us. It's not our works. It's not even our beliefs. It's our trust in your mercy and grace. It is your life in us. It's faith. It's Jesus. Only Jesus. Help us to live that truth today. That others may see him in us and know his goodness and grace. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Thanks so much for joining us this week. We, we hope you have an amazing week. I'm excited for next Sunday. Our good friend Jonathan Hepner is going to be sharing. So we'll be pausing the series in Galatians for a week to hear what God's laid on his heart. But I'm so grateful for this time that we've had together. And, and I hope that this message is sinking into your hearts, that it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. Know that I'm praying for you. I'd love to connect with you if you want to email or text. And until we see each other again, may the beauty of God be reflected in your eyes, the love of God be reflected in your hands, the wisdom of God be reflected in your words, and the knowledge of God flow from your heart that all might see and seeing believe. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peace to you.